Senators want U.S. pressure on the International Criminal Court. Secretary of State Tony Blinken goes all in on the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism. That and our featured guest of the week, United States Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from the great state of New York. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode eight of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, how was your Purim? My Purim was fantastic. I had a Chabad Megillah reading on my front stoop. All the neighbors gathered. It was really a meaningful experience. How about yours? I saw the photos on Facebook. It looked pretty fun. Uh, I, too, uh, enjoyed a Chabad reading. They were doing some uh, seats outdoors at the window, and the reader inside was back at the window so that people inside, outside could hear. It was very nice and just, you know, a little bit of normalcy returned and hopefully a lot more in the coming weeks and months ahead. Indeed, indeed. Okay, turning to our first topic, the International Criminal Court. There is a letter circulating in the United States Senate at the moment. Uh, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, a Republican, uh, joining forces with Senator Ben Cardin, Democrat of Maryland, circulating a letter among colleagues uh, urging the administration, the Biden administration that is, to put pressure on the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to stop its investigations of Israel for potential war crimes. We talked about this a little bit in past episodes. Uh, The ICC created out of the Rome Statute many years ago. Uh, The United States is not a member. Israel is not a member. It was supposed to investigate war crimes in areas that did not have active judicial systems. Obviously, the chief prosecutor who is on her way out uh, has decided to launch investigations both of Israel and the United States. Uh, There is a new chief prosecutor that's been elected out of the Great Britain. Some hope that there might be a change in direction. Uh, But uh, Jared, do you see this being an issue that will be tackled by the Biden administration? You know, Rich, I think the Biden administration is going to really hold strong on this issue. I think with a prosecutor on the way out, with the hope of something different on the horizon, this is really a bipartisan issue. Uh, A lot of support on both sides of the aisle for really making sure that Israel is not held to a higher standard, especially when you look at the fact that the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction over Israel and the territories is far from agreed upon. There's a lot of uh, differing legal thinking out there about whether they even have any kind of jurisdiction here. Uh, the the territory, the language around whether they do or do not have jurisdiction over territories is just not quite there. And so I think the Biden administration is going to stand strong here and push back on any attempts to prosecute Israel under the Rome Statute. Yeah, I, I think credit to them. Uh, they have signaled they are going to be determined uh, to work on that issue. Uh, you know, the Trump administration had imposed sanctions uh, on the on the outgoing prosecutor and other officials there. The Those are still in place. They have not been removed by the Biden administration. So I think that's actually a very uh, hopeful sign that they're giving a message to European allies, to other allies that are supportive of the ICC. We're not going to tolerate these investigations. We'd love to be cooperative to support other war crimes related investigations. uh, But you're going to have to drop these investigations of Israel, United States. So look forward to more news on that in coming days. One other letter, though, that we absolutely have to talk about. 
Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, was sending a letter uh, back to the American Zionist movement, uh, their president, Richard Heidman. Uh, and this was actually a Jewish insider exclusive this week for those uh, who, who saw that. Uh, the big deal here, uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, this is a multination coalition uh, that has adopted a, what's called a working definition of anti-Semitism that lists various examples of what should be considered anti-Semitism. And included in that list uh, are things that cross the line from just criticism of Israel to anti-Semitism using Israel as a weapon, anti-Zionism type language, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination in a Jewish state. Uh, This is a big deal to adopt it in full uh, because there have been left-wing groups that have been urging uh, Secretary Blinken not to go forward with the full working definition, uh, particularly because of the BDS movement uh, can be caught up in, in that in that definition uh, when that crosses the line into anti-Semitism. So uh, I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due. Uh, great to see there, but obviously you can say in a letter you support it. The question is, what do you do about implementing it? Yeah, and I think this is really an opportunity for the Biden administration. Uh, we've talked a lot on the show in previous weeks about, you know, different factions within the Democratic Party who are, are pro BDS or pro conditioning aid on Israel. But I think Joe Biden and his team really got to uh, demonstrate yet again that he is a longstanding, multi decade friend of the great state of Israel and that his team is going to conduct themselves as such. Uh, Tony Blinken is no different. And, uh, you know, just like uh, the Trump administration was uniquely positioned to sort of push back on right le- right leaning uh, groups that uh, strayed into extremist territory out of the mainstream, I think. I think Tony Blinken and Joe Biden are uniquely situated to declare very unambiguously that BDS is not an acceptable form of criticism of Israel. It's counterproductive. It's not good for the Palestinian people. It's not good for Israel. And it's not good for the future prospects of peace. So I think this is a good development. And, you know, I think uh, the the Jewish community writ large is going to be watching this as, as it goes forward. And we're definitely looking forward to asking a lot of these types of questions to our special guest, uh, Senator Gillibrand, coming up. But I'll make one last observation, and that is we had, uh, if you recall, Jared, former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, on the podcast several episodes ago. And he also wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post very early on uh, as the Biden administration was coming in. And his message was really, we're going to disagree on Iran. You know, it was sort of a telegraph. This is going to be a flashpoint. But we're not going to also criticize Israel. We're not also going to embrace other left-wing policies. We're going to do what we can to be a pro-Israel administration, knowing that we're going to have strong disagreement on Iran. I do think so far you're seeing these small steps that actually do back up you know, that sort of telegraph from, from Ambassador Shapiro. Absolutely. And I think those small steps you know, add up to uh, confidence building by those in the pro-Israel community. And when it comes time to have... Uh, honest policy differences. It, it, it builds a reservoir of trust. So that way, when we have to have those conversations and those disagreements, it's from a place of trust. And on that note, let's uh, talk to our special guest, Jared. Why don't you introduce her? Kirsten Gillibrand is the junior senator from the great state of New York. She was appointed to the United States Senate after Hillary Clinton resigned to become Secretary of State. Uh, she won the seat again in 2010 and a re-election in 2012, and she is 
been a leader on a number of issues, particularly on a proponent of reform in the military's handling of sexual assaults. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Jared. Hi, Rich. You represent the state of New York, my home state, which obviously has a large Jewish population. And one thing we wanted to sort of see to start out, what have you learned about the Jewish community across New York State? That it's a very diverse community, that it's a community that cares deeply about New York and their fellow citizens. It's a community that um, truly believes in the greater good. Uh, A lot of the not-for-profits that are run by Jewish leaders are among the best in the state. So it's a real joy to spend time and to work with people um, in the Jewish community across our state. Last year, I know uh, you were one of the elected officials marching with us over the Brooklyn Bridge um, to protest a rise in, in hate crimes. What do you say to constituents who are really worried about this troubling trend, particularly uh, in the more visible uh, parts of the Jewish community, but really no no. At- no part of the Jewish community is immune from some of the rise in hate crimes that have been we've seen in the last couple of years. Unfortunately, um, the rise of anti-Semitism has uh, been exponential. It has been a constant growth across the country. I think, unfortunately, the Trump presidency uh, very much impacted that, um, especially when uh, they had the Charlottesville riots and um, chants were done that were deeply offensive against the Jewish community. Uh, and President Trump did not stand up to it. Um, so what I try to do in the U.S. Senate is be a s- galvanizer for uh, legislation and policies to fight anti-Semitism. I typically lead the legislation and the bills that relate to fighting against anti-Semitism at the U.N., which unfortunately uh, the Human Rights Council is often used as a platform for anti-Semitism. Uh, I also uh, lead the letters and the funding um, to fight against anti-Semitism and to keep our community safe. So the UASI grants, which are for places of worship, for religious schools, for Jewish communities that are targeted, um, th- that funding is essential to keeping our community safe. Uh, I also work to um, host different convening events where we can talk about the rise of anti-Semitism. I'm particularly concerned about the rise on college campuses and how unfortunately students are targeted. And Senator, you, you, you've just named a lot of the things you've worked on. I mean, we, we've noted a few of them over the years as far as increased security funding for nonprofits, uh, schools and synagogues, uh, the push at the Department of Agriculture to get more kosher food at food banks, um, obviously have supported security assistance to Israel. Uh, but but there hasn't been sort of, you know, complete uh uh, you know, cordiality with the with the larger Jewish community, especially the pro-Israel community at times over the last couple of years. Um, you know, there was a withdrawal of sponsorship of the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, uh, some concerns that maybe led you to vote against uh, S-1 a couple of years ago, which was a, a larger package uh, of uh, anti-BDS legislation. You know, I guess first question would be, today, how do you sort of assess your relationship with the Jewish community in New York? I think it's very positive. Um, I visit with a lot of our Jewish leaders regularly. I visit um, the Hasidic communities uh, throughout the state regularly, and I'm always available to talk through issues. Uh, I think I've been very clear that I've always been against BDS because I think it is used as a cudgel for anti-Semitism. I also believe that there's no place for anti-Semitism at the UN and the BDS, again, movement uh, tries to leverage that. 
And I think the legislation in both instances that you talked about, unfortunately, were just poorly written. And when something's poorly written and has an unintended impact, I can't support it. It doesn't mean, though, that I'm not against BDS and won't stand out to decry it, uh, any type of anti-Semitism when I hear it. And that's my record. I've done it every time. Um, and I think I've been meeting the needs of our communities quickly. Um, after some of the most recent stabbings, I went just within days to visit that community, to listen to worried parents and worried community leaders and talk about how I can help them. Yeah. And Senator, you talked a little bit about the anti-Semitism, especially that we've seen from the right. Uh, you know, we also have seen the anti-Semitism on the left, um, the support for BDS in some of the progressive type communities. We spoke with Congressman Richie Torres a few episodes ago about this. He, you know, he was concerned about that as well. Do you see that as an issue in the Senate? I mean, there there are obviously some senators uh, with, with a mixed record on BDS. Uh, is it a problem inside the Democratic caucus right now, or is it just a vocal minority? I think it's just a few individuals um, who truly don't believe they're anti-Semitic, but uh, perhaps some people uh, have, have said they are because of their votes or words they've used. Um, I think uh, support of Israel and support of ending hate crimes is universal in the Senate today. And I don't think there's anyone who's against supporting Israel or fighting against anti-Semitism. Um, and there's lots of really good bipartisan bills specifically that show that work. Um, I'm a co-sponsor of the Never Again Education Act, which basically creates a federal fund at the Department of Education to um, teach children uh, in high school and middle school the importance of fighting against hate. Um, they cover uh, Holocaust. They cover, um, have training. They do field trips. Um, they do a lot of good work. So I'm working on that. And I, um, along with Marco Rubio, supported the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism Act, which would basically empower and elevate the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism at the State Department. So that was signed into law um, just this January. So I just think there's a lot of work we do together in the Senate that really does speak our values. And Senator, to that end, you know, Rich, Rich is the Republican on the show and I'm the Democrat. And Rich always likes to pile on about the things that Democrats are doing, particularly in the House, that that can pre be perceived to be or are anti-Israel. There's been a little bit of talk about uh, folks who want to condition aid to Israel on on behavior and concessions. Where do you stand on the issue of conditioning aid to Israel, uh, military or otherwise? Well, I, I have not ever conditioned our aid to Israel um, because they are our closest ally and being the only uh, real democracy in the Middle East, it's essential that we continue to guarantee and support their security. So I think aid, um, particularly um, security aid, is something that shouldn't be bargained with. Uh, I think it's important to support, and I do, and I think that's generally shared by the majority. S Senator, you know, I used to work for, for Mark Kirk years ago and, and worked with you and your staff, you know, really well. And I have to say, when we first came to the Senate in that late 2010 special election, I mean, uh, your office, you know, your leadership was top notch among Democrats in the Senate on Iran specifically. And we worked on a lot of bipartisan legislation together, uh, coming up with ways to counter Iran's human rights record and sanctions on Iran, et cetera. 
But obviously, we went through those Iran deal years um, and just ported the Iran deal. We're sort of now in this new phase uh, where there's talk of going back to it. The controversies are sort of reopening. Do you see a path forward that is bipartisan on Iran? Like, wh- where do you stand in your view today uh, of going forward, uh, at least in the Senate? And, and so where you think the Biden administration should go as well? Well, I very much oppose President Trump's very short-sighted and dangerous decision to leave the JCPOA. Um, That opened a door for Iran to quickly begin to um, rebuild its nuclear program, which it has done. And so now the question is uh, whether the Biden presidency will re-enter that arrangement. Um, I think as part of that process, it's essential that we look longer term to make sure that any future deal is much further into the future. I think any future deal should include aspects of fighting against terrorism and terrorism spending, as well as um, missile um, use and missile production and, and, and growth of missile technology. I think you have to have a much more comprehensive approach, and we should be working with the world community to make sure that we don't stand alone, that we are always standing with our allies and partners um, one of the reasons why I re- originally supported the Iran deal was because, you know, I sit on the Armed Services Committee. I now also sit on the Intelligence Committee. And at that time, our national security experts, our CIA, our Department of Defense, all said that the deal made such a better position for America in terms of national security because we would gain all the knowledge of the mines, the mills, the centrifuges, the production, and we'd have hands on, eyes on. Uh, each production facility. And and that, they believed, was the kind of intelligence that could not be passed up for any future conflict that might be necessary if Iran did breach and if, for example, we needed to bomb or to um, have any kind of kinetic operations. So that's why I supported it. If we are going to enter into it again, we need to have the same national security priorities, and it needs to be something that makes us and Israel safer in the long term. Um, so I would be very eager to hear how that the new administration would secure that and from the world community as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And obviously, yesterday we heard from the uh, IAEA director general in Vienna, uh, who's talking about there's some undeclared sites that that they found in Iran, undeclared nuclear material samples that they've detected. I'm sure you're looking at that on the intelligence committee. Um, it sounds like that might be something that needs to get addressed to have that full picture of Iran's nuclear activities before we would jump back in. Yeah, before COVID hit, um, I did take a a CODEL to um, Vienna to meet with the IAEA, and we were able to get up-to-date information at the time about what was happening. Um, I certainly hope as soon as COVID is under control that we can take another trip out there and to not only meet with the IAEA again, but meet with our partners in the region to assess um, the credibility of the review and where and how the U.S. should stand with the world community against uh, Iran's malign actions. Senator, I'm going to sort of zoom out a little bit. You were elected to the House from as a blue dog in a very sort of purple district, uh, and now you represent in the United States Senate the entirety of the state, including you know the downstate area, which I guess is one of the bluest places in the country. Where you know, how do you see that evolution? How do you see yourself? 
having come from that district and on what issues has it sort of evolved your thinking? What issues has it not? Or is it this, or is it the same? Just to wanted to, you know, ask the more philosophical question. So I, I was only in the house for two years. Um, so it was a very short amount of time for my whole public service career. I've been in the Senate now for over 10. Uh, so in the house days, I was very green, very new, and I was learning a lot on the job. Um, but I did represent a two to one Republican district that was quite conservative on some issues. But I think as a leader, it's really important that some issues you represent the people you represent and some issues you should lead the people you represent. And as a senator for over a decade, um, I really think it's it's most important to, to lead. Um, I think it's really important to look to your values, look to your beliefs, um, listen to your constituents, understand the problems, and then synthesize into your best decision about how to lead the state and the country. Um, I think it's important that we recognize that humility is one of the strongest aspects of leadership. Uh, being able to admit when you're wrong or when you don't know something is very important. Um, but then finding out the information you need through listening. It's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time around the state doing town halls, because it's a great way to deeply understand what's going on in your state, as diverse as New York is, and then have the information you need to make a decision on how best to lead. Um, but I feel that uh, as I've matured and grown, I'm a much stronger advocate than ever before. And even my presidential run really informed me. I felt that that opportunity to listen to issues and hear problems across the country really synthesized for me that there's far more that binds us than divides us. And where those commonalities lie in healthcare, education, jobs, growing the economy, security, those are the areas of commonality. And those are the areas where often I, I focus on because those are the areas that most people really need someone to get something done. So Senator, you may not remember this, but, uh, the the first time we ever met was right after Hurricane Sandy, and I was on Secretary Napolitano's staff, and we were doing a, a press conference out in Rockaway, and she was fi finishing up a call with President Obama in the car, and you were there with other members of the New York congressional delegation who all came dressed as if they were voting on the on the House floor, and you came dressed to do work, and I remember turning around and saying, "Well, we lost Senator Gillibrand," and what you had done is you actually went over to a truck and started unloading cases of water and getting in in the box line and for me that was when uh you know more than anything i'd ever seen from you on tv um your leadership by example in this time of national emergency when there were no cameras looking really impressed me that you you were the real thing and so i just wanted to sort of go on record as saying that it's one of uh one of my more memorable moments in that whole hurricane sandy experience the time we lost senator Gillibrand <laughs> and she and she Turned out, turned up unloading yeah. a, a truck. Oh, I remember. So I think, you know, in those times of grave need, um, a lot of my mothering instincts come through. <laughs> so I remember that moment and said, we need to get this better organized. This is not organized well enough. We need to make sure, because I said, one of the things that upset me so much is there were so many people waiting in line for, to get basic things they needed. And there was so much stuff that wasn't even unpacked yet. And I and I just thought these people need, you know, blankets and clothes and coats and food and toiletries. And there's no one unpacking stuff. There's no one. I just got so frustrated because I saw a need and I wanted to solve the problem. And, and I didn't have the power or authority to do so. So I just 
pitched in. And I thought if I just could do this for 10 or 15 minutes, maybe a few more people will get what they need a little faster. And Senator, you also had a presidential bid. What was that experience like running for president? Uh, did you learn things along the way? Yeah, I, I did. Um, I learned or um, really had reaffirmed the importance of listening. Um, I really saw commonality everywhere. Um, you'd be surprised no matter where you go. Issues of clean air, clean water are universal. Um, need for food is universal. Need for better job training and better job opportunities is universal. Need for better public schools is universal. And so I saw this, this, this aspect of how we are far more alike than people want to admit. And especially in this era of, of divisiveness and just constant partisan hate and um, sort of the hate that that has spewed constantly over the last four or five years of dividing on racial and religious and socioeconomic lines, that that is not who we should be or are as Americans. Because when I listen to all communities, whether they're red, blue, or purple, they, everyone loves their kids. Everybody wants the best for their families. Everybody wants a community that's thriving. And those are things we can always work on together. And so I think it was such a blessing because I learned so much. I think I became a better advocate, um, a better senator, and I feel like I, I can be that much more effective now. And, and Senator, obviously, you've been one of the most outspoken elected leaders in the country on defending the rights of sexual assault, sexual harassment victims who come forward. Uh, I want to ask you about that, but obviously, we'd be remiss if we didn't also ask you to comment on the allegations uh, emerging against Governor Cuomo back home. I guess there's a third allegation now emerging. What do you say to folks who say Governor Cuomo should resign? Well, um, my perspective is these are obviously serious allegations and are deeply concerning. Um, It's why I agree with uh, the attorney general when she requested that she be allowed to do a thorough, independent, um, and transparent uh, investigation uh, with subpoena power. So I support her doing that. And I think that is the appropriate next steps um, to allow people to be heard and allow facts to be gathered. I I know we've gone through a lot of transition in this country on this issue. And frankly, your voice has led that much of that evolution on how people talk and think about this issue. And, you know, one of that sort of threads, um, the messaging is accusers need to be believed, right? That, that was sort of the, the big, the big message of the last couple of years. You, you know, are we now in danger of sort of a pendulum swing back to everyone should be heard and everyone should be believed and let due process play out? Is is or, or do we still sort of do you still sort of think yes, accusers need to be believed? So unfortunately, you're confusing the issue significantly, and even the way you ask the question shows the lack of understanding of what Me Too is about. And let me explain it to you so you can tell others, um, because no one's in favor of eliminating due process. No one's in favor of eliminating our criminal justice system. No one's in favor of letting only one side tell their truth. That's never been part of Me Too. What Me Too is part of is that many survivors, men and women, who have endured sexual violence, sexual harassment in the workplace, when they told the authorities, what happened to them, they were disbelieved. And so the investigation never took place. So justice had no possibility of ever being done because every time a woman walks into a police station and said, I was just raped, 
And the police officer looks at it and says, well, is that what you were wearing? Uh, were you drinking? No one would say that to a man who ran into a police station and said, my computer was stolen. They wouldn't say, well, is that what you're wearing? And do you really own a computer? They would say, where, where was it stolen, sir? Tell us the facts. So when you say believe survivors, you're just saying believe them so you will investigate. It doesn't mean they're automatically right. It doesn't mean they automatically um, win the case or whatever the issue might be. What it means is you must listen to the words that are said and you need to investigate it thoroughly, efficiently, transparently. And so justice has a possibility of being done. So that's what Me Too is about. It's always been about that. And the reason why the phrase believe survivors is so important is because without it, the first instinct of so many people in power is to disbelieve them. It's the only crime in America where the first instinct of law enforcement is to believe it didn't happen. Um, and it's also one of the crimes where when there's he said, she said, they say, well, th th there's no evidence. Well, it's he said, she said in every crime, the murderer says, I didn't do it. And the person who's died and the, the family who's prosecuting says, yes, you did. It's he said, she said. It's always an issue of testimony and weighing evidence. But for some reason, in a sexual assault case or a sexual harassment case, they law enforcement and you know different types of employers just throw up their hands and say, oh, well, it's he said, she said, you know, you don't know. Well, weigh the evidence. And if it's a crime, prosecute the crime. And if you don't convict, then you don't convict. That's what our criminal justice system is about. And in a case that's not criminal, um, in a civil case where it's um, a civil violation, that's why we have things like the EEOC and we have other systems to guarantee that we fight against anti-Semitism, that we fight against racism, that we fight against sexism, that we fight against harassment in the workplace. And so what I do is um, work on a bipartisan basis um, to change the way we deal with these cases. I've been working, for example, with Senator Cruz and Senator Rand Paul, um, with the support of Senator Grassley and Mitch McConnell on changing how we deal with sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, in the military. I also have bipartisan work with Marco Rubio on how we deal with sexual assault on college campuses. Um, I've worked with a bunch of senators to fix the rules here in the Senate because they were terribly weighed in favor of senators or House members who were accused of sexual harassment or racism or sexual uh, violence. And so we reformed those processes. So no one is in favor of ending criminal justice or due process. Everyone is in favor of doing the work and doing the investigations and not disbelieving a survivor on the first day. Yeah, listen, I, I think that was a very profound response from you. And I think it's something that everybody needs to listen to. Um, I, I, For me, this is very personal as a hashtag girl dad. And I, I think these, these are the kinds of conversations that we want to promote on the podcast to really have a good understanding and back and forth on these kind of issues. When I hear from Republican critics, what they would say is, you know, they'll, they'll take some of your statements, you know, for instance, during the Kavanaugh hearings, um, and they would say, is there a different standard applied to Republicans or Democrats when there are accusations and accusers who come forward that, you know, this is obviously a political dynamic, not a legal dynamic in a court of law. Um, and so when they look at 
Cuomo, in this case, they say, is there is he being treated the same way a Republican would be would be treated? You know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think there has been a difference between political parties. Democrats hold their own accountable and Republicans don't. Okay, obviously, I disagree with that. But uh, (laughs) well, let's just look at President Trump, for goodness sakes. I mean, honestly, he had more than a dozen allegations of sexual assault. We heard him on a audio tape saying what he does to women because they let him. It's an outrage that no Republicans stood up to him and said, that is not who we want as the standard bearer of our party. The, the way he devalued and, and demeaned women across the board was outrageous. The things he admitted to doing, the things that we have on tape, the number of allegations that came forward, the, the fact that he had non-disclosure agreements um, required to be signed, the fact that he paid off women who had assault claims against him. Like the list goes on so long, it infuriates me. And unfortunately, the whole party to the largest extent, and there's a few brave, few brave that do stand up to him, but the majority don't. So that's why I go back to my statement, you don't hold your own accountable. And Trump is the perfect example and it's very painful to have to say to a colleague that you might care about or a colleague that um, does great things for the country to say that something's not okay. And unfortunately, when you do that, you are o- often punished for doing so. But your party did not stand up to President Trump. So, Senator, uh, from there, I think uh, we're going to move into the the lightning round, Rich, unless there's you wanted to. Have one alibi here? Or? No, no, no. Listen, I, I think your record on the Kavanaugh hearing is one that 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 people look to and talk about here. And so, you know, we, we've asked you on Governor Cuomo. You, you've, you've given your answer. But I think that the critics would say that there there still may be a double standard. So just for the record, in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings, they didn't do an investigation. We asked for a thorough investigation. I know of people who wanted to testify who were told they were not allowed to testify who had credible evidence about other allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. That investigation was not allowed. They did a very shoddy, quick investigation where they limited witnesses and didn't allow them to testify in open hearing. Um, So no, I don't think the Kavanaugh investigation is a double standard. In fact, I'm still frustrated that that investigation was never completed. We never got the facts. Uh, We never got more evidence of the two or three other accusers that came forward. So Yes, you don't hold your own accountable. Fair enough. And with that, Senator, I'm going to move us into the lightning okay, round. Okay, go ahead. Um, all right. So, Senator, we have uh, we usually like to uh, uh, have a series of questions that are more lighthearted. Um, so the first is, Senator, you are uh, the center of probably the largest Jewish population in, in a state. I don't know. Maybe California or Florida would come close. Um, so do you have a favorite Yiddish word? I like chutzpah. Okay. That's a, that's a good one. Um, chutzpah. Yeah. And that goes for a lot of people we encounter in the, in the body politic for sure. The next one we have is, do you have a book you're currently reading? Well, I'm reading several books. Um, I'm reading a series of books with my 12 year old. Um, I'm sure the most famous of one is called Ender's Game. And we will listen to these books on our trips to New York and listen to them on tape. And there's about eight books written by that author. And so we're booked like three or four. Um, My husband and I like to listen to books too. And we're listening to one right now about um, the settlement of the West of the United States. I forget the name of it, but it's very good. Um, 
And um, I like some, I like biographies. I like presidential biographies. And so I'm listening to Michael Beschloss's book right now, um, Presidents at War, which is interesting. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in the middle of several. Um, and then I, I do a lot of um, uh, Bible study because I, I uh, it's one of the bipartisan things I do in the Senate. And I'm reading um, a book right now by my favorite Christian author, Tim Keller. Okay, my, my, my turn for a lighthearted question. Uh, what is your favorite food in upstate New York? And that can include the Borscht Belt. Even though that's technically upstate for the purists. I, I, I think anything okay, north... I, I, I'm from Chicago. It's all upstate. Listen, anything north of the Bronx is upstate to me, but but to the purists, the Catskills are not technically upstate. But sorry, Senator, we digress. Okay, so, 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 so parentheses Catskills. Close enough. I, anything above, as, as long as you are above Westchester, you could you can argue you're upstate. I think the Hudson Valley does count. Okay. Um, I'm from Albany, um, so I love all the upstate delicacies. But you'll be surprised. I'm a bit of an apple snob, so I I like to try all the upstate apples, and um, I only like a good upstate apple. I won't eat some apple from somewhere else. So I like Honeycrisp because they're super good. That's a newer apple. I like Macintosh, which was um, an oldie but goodie. Uh, I also like um, the dairy from upstate New York. Um, who doesn't love ice cream? And, 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 and the ice cream that I really like is from Stewart's, which is like the, one of the least expensive ice creams you can buy, but it's um, less sugar and less fat than something like Haagen-Dazs, and so it's really good. So I like ice cream. Those are my favorites. I can't argue with that. That is bipartisan for sure. Um, the last one in our lightning round is uh, who is one senator, past or present, that you look up to? Um, let's see. You know, historically, I always looked up to Hillary Clinton, of course. Um, she's been my political role model for a very, very long time. And I'm in her seat. And this person before her, I also look up to Moynihan. And before him in the line, it also is um, uh, RFK. So there's, it's quite a storied legacy for the Senate seat that I'm in. And I admire all of them. Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the frank discussion. Um, we really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back on soon. And uh, there you have it, folks. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Well, thank you, guys. And I'm sorry I got a little testy there. <laughs> it's okay. We appreciate no, it. No, it, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's a healthy conversation that should be had. Great. Thank you so much, Senator. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. Bye. Wow, what an amazing interview with Senator Gillibrand. Really appreciate her giving us her unvarnished and really raw opinion about what what's going on in the world today. Rich, uh, you know, she gave as good as she took. And we that's what we want here is honest opinion, honest exchange of ideas. And I think if we can keep doing this on the podcast, we're achieving something. But in lieu of a reader mailbag this week, I wanted to ask you, Rich, where were you a year ago this week? I know where I was. Where were you? 
So a year ago, so what, this is the first week of March, right? So a year ago, I would have been at APAC Policy Conference, uh, like probably most of our listeners or a good number of them. And I was leading two panels, one on whether or not we should provide U.S. assistance to Lebanon and the Lebanese Armed Forces. You can play the snooze music, but it was very interesting. And I thought I did a great job uh, and also led a, a larger group panel on the at the time, the, the Trump administration's Iran maximum pressure campaign strategy, it was bipartisan. And my counterpart is now actually in the administration as an official at the Defense Department. Fantastic. Well, I could tell you I was probably down the hall uh, throwing what has come to be known as one of the larger parties by a presidential candidate ever in APAC policy conference history on behalf of my boss, Michael Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, didn't quite work out for us in the presidential, but it was a great party. And I did have the great opportunity to speak to a group of students from South Florida, hosted by one of our dear friends and listeners. Uh, Rabbi, if you're out there, we love you. And, you know, all, all this to say, I look forward to a time when we can all be together for policy conference again next year uh, to be with people we agree with, people we don't agree with, all in our shared support of the great state of Israel. Well, well said, uh, Jared. I did not know you were at the policy conference last year. We could have, we may have met. You have no idea. We may have bumped into each other. We may have, we may have spoken to each other. We, I would, I you know, I'll say it. I definitely did not shake your hand because my wife sent me there with just so much hand sanitizer and told me not to shake anybody's hand because we knew something was going on. Uh, that was really the last time I traveled, um, you know, to, to anywhere. But uh, wow, memory lanes. Yeah, hopefully we are all together again next year at Policy Conference. And while there's no group meeting, as we talked about at the top of the show, there are still letters circulating on Capitol Hill in support of the U.S.'s relationship. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family. If you didn't like what you heard, don't tell anybody. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at JI Podcast and download us on your podcast listening medium of choice. If you have tips, show ideas, questions, send us an email, podcast at jewishinsider.com. And until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah. yeah.